So, uh, not to shock you this morning, but the video announcement said that you have 10 days until Christmas. And by my accounting, that is ridiculously wrong. You actually only have nine days until Christmas. So there's a couple things I should say about that. Number one, uh, if you have year-end giving that you want to get in by the end of the year, that week of Christmas is going to be uh, busy for us, and we, there, there's going to be several days in there where we'll be closing the office, and so you might want to try to get that in this week. That's the first thing. That's important. We love that. Uh, so if you have year-end giving, make sure to get that in. Um, and uh, the second thing is I have no doubt that every person in here is 100% ready for Christmas. Right? Y'all got your shopping done? Because we're at the point now where that two-day free shipping is not going to get it done for you. We're getting close. Sometimes it goes past Christmas as the packages pile up. I'm just saying. But you all have your shopping done and your decorations up. and All of the presents are wrapped and under the Christmas tree, right? All your baking is baked. Your chestnuts are roasted. Everybody here has already removed all of the formerly appropriate but now culturally insensitive songs from your playlist. <laughs> Ready for Christmas? Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. We're big fans here of the Advent season, and part of what we're doing even on Sunday mornings, we're doing it on Wednesday night as well, as we're trying to observe that time in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, because a part of what we're supposed to be doing there is we're supposed to be building anticipation for the coming of Christ, and, and so many times we just kind of like plow through it because there's so much stuff going on, but as a part of that, we should be building and burning anticipation for the second coming of Christ, and that is, that is something that is important for us not to lose sight of, and so I encourage you to not just blow through all of that. This Sunday is that Sunday when we're supposed to be celebrating or having joy in our hearts as we're getting closer and closer and closer to it. And, and so um, while we're going through that, uh, we just want on Sunday to make sure that that is happening. And so we're doing a series called On the Way, which is um, just uh, the whole point with it is we're going through the Old Testament times when the little town of Bethlehem shows up prior to Jesus being born there. And so um, we've covered, two weeks ago we covered the story in Genesis where, Genesis 35, where Rachel dies and is buried along the side of the road on the way to Bethlehem with still some distance to go is what it says. And so that really is where we got the name for this series, On the Way. And then last week we talked about um, Ruth and Boaz and, and baby Obed, the servant of all who was born also in Bethlehem, um, and what that means today for us and how that was the beginnings, the first rays poking over the horizon, pointing towards Christ. And so today we're going to finish or continue, not finish because we're finishing it next week, but we're going to continue on that series in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you would grab your Bibles today, and if you don't have a Bible, there are some that are spread out throughout the seats, and we would just love if you would grab one of those so that you can read the story around the story. Context is important, and a lot of times I can't hit all of it, and so we trust that you will 
Read it on your own. So if you would grab your Bibles this morning, open them up to 1 Samuel 16. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible that's in the seat is actually our gift to you. Once you have it, if you'd open it up to, if you have one of the church Bibles, page 238, 1 Samuel chapter 16. What we're about to read is going to happen in Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a background for what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 16. At this point, Samuel's old like really old. When I say he's old here, it says that Samuel is old and advanced in years in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So that's eight chapters ago. And about 25 years, okay? So if he was old and advanced in years in 1 Samuel chapter 8, by now he's like really old and really advanced in years. Now if you're wondering what that looks like, what the Bible considers old, this is the Bible, not me. Most likely in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel's probably right around 50. <laughs> so you're old in advance, according to God. Okay, and, and in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he's probably upwards of, or most likely right around 75 to 80 years old. This is the last time that Samuel shows up before his death. This is kind of like the final thing that he does. Um, in fact, he probably semi-retired before this. And then the Assemblies of God World Missions called him back. <laughs> and he's unretired and then retired again and then was called back. And now he's officially retiring, okay? What's going on? And so in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you've got to remember his age because that's a key part of this. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, this is what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? This is the classic, classic story of David being anointed, and we're calling it the anointed one. Here, it starts by saying, Hey, why are you going to grieve over Saul still? Because I've rejected him from being king over Israel. And we need to back up really, really quick and not spend a lot of time here. But I really want you to see why God rejects Saul. Because this is a key part of this. And so I'm going to back up just a few verses into 1 Samuel chapter 15. Which is, just quite honestly, it's a rough story to read. Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 15 is, it's the story of God's judgment. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is God calls Saul to judge a people called the Amalekites. And when he says to judge him, the reason why he's saying you need to judge him is because about 400 years before, the Amalekites had done something just so absolutely despicable and probably since as well. But when Israel was first coming out of Egypt, it says that the Amalekites cut off their tail which is interesting, most likely what that means, in fact, it just says this is what it means, that when they were coming out, all the weakest and the poor or those who could not keep up with everybody else kind of straggled behind. And the Amalekites came in behind this big mass of people while there's those who are kind of straggling behind and they killed them and took everything that they owned. So all the weakest and all those who were burdened, those who could not keep up with everybody else. So God says to them then, I announced a pronounced judgment over you. 
And now he is asking Saul to carry it out 400 years later. There's something really important that we need to see here about God, and that is this, that in God's eyes, sin is not something that is wiped away with time. That there is no statute of limitations in God's eyes for sin. Sin cannot just be forgotten over a period of time. It's still there. And so God calls Saul to destroy the Amalekites, and they do, kind of. They carry off all the best of the best, and God told them, take, destroy everything. So they keep the sheep and the donkeys that were in really good shape and the Rolexes. Like, they kept all the stuff that they wanted to keep, and they're coming back from this, and they're all happy. And Samuel shows up and he says, what in the world are you doing? I mean, Saul even let their king, Agag, live. Samuel says, what are you doing? And he says, as a result, in verse uh, 26 of chapter 15, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. You've rejected him, and so the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. That's not the first time he says it. In verse 23, he says the exact same thing. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is a big deal. Because that word rejected shows up eight other times in Scripture before this point. And all of those eight times, it is not God rejecting man, but it is man rejecting God. This is the first time that we see that word used in Scripture where it says that God is rejecting somebody. And here it's pointed at Saul. Before this, even when they first ask for a king, God tells Samuel, hey, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. Same word. In fact, there's a passage in Leviticus chapter 26, 43 and 44, where in verse 43 it actually says, they ha you are rejecting me. But then in verse 44 he says, even though you've rejected me, I have not rejected you. I'm going to discipline you, but I have not rejected you. So this is unique to this point in Scripture where he says, Saul, you rejected me. Now I'm rejecting you. And he says it four times in just a few verses, and then it shows up again in chapter 16, verse 1. And then Saul says, no, come on, I, I get it, I messed up, don't make me look bad in front of people. And so then Samuel says, okay, verse 32. Then Samuel said this, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Surely the bitterness of death is past. We've turned that corner, right? Sin's in the past. Judgment's over. So surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gil Gilgal. So, did I mention that this wasn't the Sunday school version of this passage of Scripture? This is pretty gruesome, right? There's a couple things I want to say about it. Number one, remember that Samuel is 80 years old at this point. Okay? So for those of you who are 80 years old, can I just say to you, you can still 
pack it. I'm sorry, that is really not a joke I should make. Okay, okay, I'm, that's so bad, so bad, okay. I had so much fun with that for like the last four days. Okay, back up, back up. And Samuel hacked Agag, and it doesn't say that Samuel hacked Agag to death. Okay, this is gruesome, and I shouldn't be joking about it, because that word hacked is an ugly word. It's the only time it shows up in Scripture, and it's not like he killed him, right? He hacked him to pieces at 80 years old. This is not a process that ended within 10 seconds, okay? And everybody around who is like, oh, the judgment of God is great! We got sheep and donkeys, and everybody's happy, They see what the judgment of God really is like against sin. This is what it looks like. An 80-year-old man hacking another man, not to death, but to pieces. And I guarantee you, if it started with people talking, by the time this is over, nobody is talking. Everybody is watching. And this is what real judgment looks like. From here, Samuel goes home, never again talks to Saul, it says. And then in chapter 16, God speaks to Samuel and says, How long will you grieve over Saul? I love that. Because that means Samuel didn't hate Saul. He didn't dislike Saul. He loved Saul. He anointed him, and it says he kissed Saul. Like he loved Saul, and he's grieving over this. He says, but why are you still grieving over him since I have again, it says, rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So he's going to anoint the next king. I want to point out one word in that where it says, for I have provided for myself a king. That word is really very interesting, and you need to stop and pay attention to it. Because that word is one word. I provided for myself. One word. And that word shows up back in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham and Isaac are headed up the mountain to go sacrifice, and Isaac looks to Abraham and says, Hey, Dad, not to bring up something totally not important, but I see the wood and I see the knife, but I don't. See the sacrifice. And Abraham says to Isaac, the Lord himself will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. In the same way that he did provide the lamb, he now has provided for himself a king from the sons of Jesse. So he tells Samuel, hey, head down to Bethlehem and anoint the next king. But Samuel's got a problem. Here's the problem. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And here, the problem is, 
that Samuel lives in Ramah, Saul lives in Gibeah, and Jesse lives in Bethlehem. And all three of these towns are within like a four-mile radius. So if Samuel packs up the horn of oil and heads out the door and somebody sees it and says something to Saul, which there's a good chance will happen, Saul could pull a Herod on Bethlehem, right? And, and remove any threat to his throne. And so God says to Samuel, here's what you need to do. You need to get a, a heifer and you need to bring it along with you, which is really interesting because there's only a few sacrifices in the Old Testament that talk specifically about a heifer. The one that's probably referring to is kind of an obscure one. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Feel free to read it, but it's this it's a sacrifice if somebody is found dead in the middle of the open country. If that happens, very clearly according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, a judge needs to bring a heifer, and what he needs to do is he needs to go out and find where that person died, and then he needs to measure the distance to all of the surrounding towns. And whichever distance is the shortest, which, whoever... Uh, whichever town was the closest to where this person died, they're the ones who are responsible for that. And they need to go through this long process to make sure that the, the sin is not on their shoulders. Okay, so when he heads off with a heifer, then they all look at him and go, oh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, that obscure law where it talks about that thing, and he needs to bring along a heifer. And so they figure out that he's just going to go sacrifice because somebody must have died in an open field. So off he goes with this heifer, and he arrives in Bethlehem, and you can see this really interesting response from the elders of the Bethlehem right off the bat. You see it. Here's what it says. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came out to him, meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so they're trembling when they meet Samuel. And I guess there's probably a couple reasons why that could be the case. Number one, he did just hack Agag to pieces. And number two, if he's carrying along a heifer with him, that means there may be sin on their heads, sin that they are responsible for. And so they're trembling, and we're not entirely sure why, but for some reason they are. And he, they ask him, do you come peaceably? He says, yes, I'm here to to sacrifice to the Lord, consecrate yourselves, come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice, okay? That's the setup for what's about to happen. And I've always kind of pictured this as Jess, uh, Samuel walking to Jesse's door, ringing the doorbell, and Jesse answering, and Samuel saying, hey, I'm here to anoint one of your sons as king. And when that happens, you don't care which son it is. You're just like, come on in, buddy. That's awesome. And that's how I've always pictured it, but it never actually says that, that's the ha that it happens. In fact, it never actually says anywhere through the story, feel free to read it right now, but never says anywhere through the story that anybody but Samuel finds out that this anointing is about a kingship. Because up until this time, the only person that Samuel has ever anointed was Saul. And that was done in secret. So the only ones who would be like looking at a horn of oil and say, oh, what's going on here, Samuel, would be Saul, Samuel, and God. They're the only ones who know. And anywhere through the story, it doesn't even say he tells David, I am anointing you as king. Okay? Nobody. He doesn't tell anybody. 
He's there to consecrate some people for his sacrifice. And then we begin this process, and it begins in verse 6. Eliab first shows up, the oldest brother. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The language of that phrase, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, is kind of like a courtroom setting. The, the language is like an Israel courtroom. He's standing before him. And he doesn't say he's standing before Samuel. It says the Lord's anointed is standing before him, standing before God. Okay, so Eliab comes before him, and Samuel looks at him and says, ah, surely the Lord's anointed, and the word for anointed there, in Hebrew, Messiah. And in the Greek Old Testament, Christ. So Samuel looks at Eliab and says, ah, surely the Lord's Christ. Surely the Lord's Messiah is standing before him. And this is all very interesting because it doesn't actually, this is the only time where Samuel is walking into a situation where it doesn't seem like he has all of the information ahead of time. Right? Like, up until now, anytime Samuel walked into a situation, he says, this is what the Lord is saying. This is the first time where it seems like Samuel's going into a situation where he's got a piece of the information, but he doesn't have all of it. Because when he sees Eliab, the first thought, he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed standing before him. And Samuel's wrong. And I wonder, why did God do it that way? Why would God do that? Because if he told Samuel the place to go, Bethlehem, and he told him the house to go to, Jesse, could he not just have easily added one more name to it? And the guy's name is David. Or he's the youngest. Or you could just skip the whole Bethlehem scene altogether. Right? Like Saul's was done in secret and as far as we can tell, it's just the family there for this anointing. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but it doesn't actually say anybody else is there. And so why not just tell Samuel, hey, head towards Bethlehem, and then right before you get there, hang a left, go up in the hills, and you'll see a dude who is shepherding some sheep. When you see that, that's your cue. That's who you're supposed to anoint. Like, he could have skipped this whole scene, but God doesn't. And Samuel walks into it, not having all of the information, but knowing that one of the sons of Jesse are going to be the one that he's supposed to anoint as the next king. First one comes before him, Eliab, and he looks at him, and he's tall, dark, and handsome, and he says this, Ah, surely the Lord's Messiah is before him. Doesn't say he tells anybody else that, okay? This says that this is happening inside. He thinks this. This is all internal guile. He's in, on the outside. He's like, mm, mm-hmm, meh. You know, this is what's happening. It doesn't say he's actually saying anything to anybody. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, he looks at Eliab and he says, Surely the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed is before him. And that, again, that word anointed, up until now, that word has referred primarily to priests. The word Messiah shows up and it calls the anointed one because there's really only three kinds of people in the Old Testament who are ever anointed. Samuel was never anointed, okay? Starts with the priests. 
priests were the first ones to be anointed and the very first ones to actually say that they are the anointed ones. To have oil poured on them. We're not entirely sure what it goes back to. A lot of people have ideas. Who knows? But it signified that this is person that God is selecting for a position of authority and leadership in Israel. So it starts with the priests. And then Saul, none of the judges are ever anointed. Starts with the priests. And then after the priests, Saul is the first who is the king who is anointed as king by God. So then it's the priests and it's the kings. And much later on, it's also the prophets. Elisha, it says, especially, very clearly says he was an anointed prophet. So you really only have the priests, the kings, and the prophets. And of course, Jesus is all of those things. And it's a beautiful thing. But here, when he says that this is the Lord's anointed one, surely, God says back to him, um, not so. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is that great core of this scripture where it says that we all look at what we can see with our eyes, but God sees through it all, right? All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So he sees right to the core of it. And so he looks at it, and where we see just that appearance, God's not impressed with the trappings. He sees what's going on in the heart. So he says, no, this is not the one. And then it says, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And we're not exactly sure what's going on here. Because at this point, it still doesn't say that Samuel said anything to Jesse. Right after this, it says that neither, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So he could be God speaking to Samuel or Samuel speaking to Jesse. We're not entirely sure. But somebody saying to somebody, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Doesn't say what he's chosen for. We don't know any of that stuff. But what it does say is they're all walking in front of him. And the first one is Shammah, or Abinadab. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now we finally have, very clearly, Samuel, Samuel speaking to Jesse. And he says, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Now Samuel's at a loss. Wait a second. God said one of his sons just had seven sons walk in front of me, and he said no to every single one of them. Doesn't say what he's choosing them for. It could be choosing, in their mind, could be choosing to replace him as judge. It could be choosing to be a prophet. Who knows? Verse 11, then Samuel said, are, are all of these, are all your sons here to Jesse? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and he went home to Ramah. And at this point, Samuel 
doesn't show up again. Technically, he shows up in the chapter 19 when David's running from Saul. He goes and he hides with Saul or with Samuel, but it doesn't actually say Samuel did anything. Just David goes and he hides there. But he heads home and David apparently heads back out to the field. The anointed one, whether he knows that's the king or he knows he's anointed for something, chosen for something, maybe he knows he's the king, but what's really interesting is it doesn't actually refer to him as the anointed one for a really long time, not until 2 Samuel near the end. Up until then, David and everyone else continues to refer to Saul as the anointed one. So, David is technically the anointed one. He actually gets two more anointings, one in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, and the next one in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And one of those anointings is from the people of Judah when he becomes the king of Judah, and one of those anointings is from the elders of Israel when he becomes the king of all of the different tribes. So he's anointed technically three times. This is the one that makes a difference because from now on, the Holy Spirit rushes on him, it says. And then eventually he's referred to as the anointed one in Scripture. Really a beautiful Scripture, a beautiful passage. I read through this story and read about a God who talks and speaks to somebody and says to him, this is the one. This is my anointed one. He says yes to David. But before he says yes to David, he says no to seven other sons. Seven of David's brothers get a no before they get, or David gets a yes. If you want to know what God is really working on me on right now, this is a thing that's it's been a struggle for me and and but what God is doing in me right now something that has been a struggle for since I've been a pastor is a recognition of the fact that to say yes to one thing means I have to say no to another thing right if if I'm going to say yes to doing something on a Monday night an appointment or meeting or whatever I have to say no to spending Monday night with my family. And if I say yes to sleeping in for an extra hour in the morning, I have to say no to an hour with the Lord in devotions and prayer. To say yes to something inherently means to say no to something else. And, and as somebody who's trying more and more to let my yes be my yes and my no be my no, what this means is I have to be slower to say yes. If God said no seven times before he said yes, I think that that's a pretty good ratio. So this is what's happening in my life and as I'm reading through this story, but but then as I read through the story of the God who, kind of through this very odd beauty pageant, 
that all of these brothers come along and one after the other he says no to. No, 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 no. And it doesn't tell us why God said no to them. Like Shama, what was wrong with Shama? Abinadab, what was wrong with Abinadab that God said, this is not the one? No. And Eliab, I mean, that sounds like a king's name. His name is Eliab. Abinadab, I get like, his excellency, King Agabinababa. You know, like nobody's going to get that. But Eliab, that's easy. Like there's no reason why that shouldn't work. But God sees something in his heart. And as you read it, this is really interesting. Verse 6, it says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, because I have rejected him. That word for rejected... The same word that he uses for Saul in the last chapter. What's so wrong with Eliab? God sees into his heart and sees something there. I reject him. And boy, that scares me a little bit. Because I'm tall, dark, and handsome. And I don't want to be rejected. I read the story, though, and with everything inside of me, I want to be David. But there's a fear that in reality, I'm Eliab. Because Eliab, like, I don't know what he does wrong. Later on in the story, when David's seeing Goliath, Eliab tells David, you have presumption and evil in your heart he's the one who speaks in that moment and slams David but boy I did worse things than that to my brothers one point I made one of my brothers run away okay and I look at Eliab and later on David actually puts him in leadership over the tribe of Judah the biggest tribe So he's got to have some ability to administrate. He's got to be a leader. He's got to have something. He's got to be humble enough that he's not going to try to usurp David from the throne. But God looks into his heart and says, no, not this one. I reject him. Over and over and over again. Study after study says that the greatest fear that humans have is the fear of rejection. We fear being rejected by our loved ones, our spouses, our co-workers, our bosses, our friends. And boy, I think at a base level, I have that same fear. The fear of being rejected. And I'm convinced that the reason why we have that fear is that at a very base level, we understand that we as humans have rejected God. And that we understand as a result of that rejection, what we deserve is rejection in return. 
And so we map that on other things, and we say, oh, I'm, fear, I'm afraid of being rejected in this situation or that situation or this situation or that situation. But really, ultimately, it is this deep desire to be accepted by God and a fear that we won't be. And I read this story, and I want to be David, but I more often than not am afraid am I, that I'm actually Eliab. You know what I love? Let me tell you what I love. That that word rejection shows up again after this. Shows up in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Shows up in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen, anointed, chosen, and precious. You yourselves are living stones, continues on, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He was rejected. So then what does Scripture say about us? What does the Word of God say about me. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 1 John chapter 2, verse But you have been anointed by the Holy One, (laughs) and you all have knowledge. We are the chosen ones because He was the rejected one. What was God doing as He was providing for Himself a Messiah? Well, he was providing for himself an anointed one in whom the rejection of man and the rejection of God find their meeting. We rejected him. We rejected Christ. And God, in response, instead of pouring his rejection out on us, puts it on Jesus Christ. So in the story of the anointing of David, Jesus is Eliab, and we get to be David. And the beautiful thing about it is that we don't have to go through some beauty pageant, make a turn on the catwalk in front of the Lord, or try to fit our foot into a glass slipper that doesn't fit. 
What I love is Jesus Christ already did it for us. And God the Father is the one who provided for himself an anointed one whose whole purpose was to be rejected on our behalf. So the anointed one is also the rejected one. And we just get to be his chosen ones. We become his children. The rejection that we deserved, the judgment we deserved, was poured out on Jesus Christ. You see, I want to be David in the story. I'm afraid that I'm Eliab in the story. But I deserve to be Agag in the story. That's what I deserve. And yet, because of what Jesus Christ has done, and his rejection that he received, I get to be the chosen one, the anointed one. And all of that fear of rejection all of that fear that God will not accept me, all of those things. Because here's the thing. I really believe and sense right now that there are people in this room who are deathly afraid of rejection. Maybe it's because you've been rejected in the past by someone you loved. Or maybe it's because of something else. I don't know. But it's like you constantly have this fear of rejection that everywhere you go and every interaction that you have with every person that you talk to, that fear is there. It is ever and constantly before you. Can I just say to you that there is one of two places that that comes from. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior... It comes from a deep recognition of the fact that you have been rejected. If you've rejected his salvation, then you cannot approach God. If, however, you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that fear comes from the pit of hell. And he is using something that is deep within us and a desire for acceptance from God. And he's trying to take that and say... Oh, are you really accepted by the Lord? Are you really his child? Are you really his anointed one? He is taking those things and he's trying to drive a wedge between you and the Lord. And so you read stories like this of David and you think, ah, you, you get it. But then there's this deep underwriting sense of, wait a second, what if I'm one of the other ones? And this is a fear that shows up over it. What if he removes his spirit from me? Jesus Christ took my judgment. Jesus Christ took my rejection. And now I can be accepted. So when the enemy throws those things in our face over and over and over again, and I fear that rejection I have to stand on the things that I know to be true. Yes, God is just. But what's great is he has provided for himself an anointed one on whom rejection was heaped that you and I might be accepted. And when I deny that, I belittle 
the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, my Messiah. So today, what we do is we stand on the things we know to be true. We stand on the fact that Jesus Christ died for you and died for me. He was the anointed one that I might be the anointed one. That he could take my rejection, my judgment on him. That's the story of the Messiah, the anointed one. I love that song we did earlier. I want to put up the lyrics to it really quick if we could. I know who you say I am. I am who you say I am. But the enemy comes at us and says, this is who you are. No, I know who you say. He says, his word says, I am. So if we would put those lyrics up real quick. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Chosen, anointed one. Really means the one chosen and selected. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. I really just sense that today we need to declare that. We need to declare that. And when the word says that I am his chosen, because of who he is and what he has done, that is true. When the word says that he never leaves me nor forsakes me, that is true. I stand on that. I don't waver. And when the enemy comes at me and tries to make me afraid of rejection, I rebuke him in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was the anointed one to be the rejected one. We say, you have no place here. Jesus took that for me. Oh, you're right. I deserved it. But he took it. And now I am his child because of who he is and what he has done. Would you stand with me today? And I'm just going to ask that you would declare that and then in a moment I'm going to get back up and I'm going to give us an opportunity to pray. But here this morning, regardless of what your feelings might be, regardless of what you sense, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, nothing can separate you nothing oh but I'm afraid what if he rejects me that is from the pit of hell and rebuke it like it is you have no place in this room so you stand on the word of God and say I am who you say I am I want us to declare that and then I'm going to have one final instruction before we dismiss I am who you say I am.